This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Tis the season for giving up things that are bad for us, and the author of a new book says sugar should be at the top of the list. Gary Taubes will join us to make his case against sugar. And a new study shows that where you live can affect your risk of dementia if you live close to high-traffic areas. One of the lead authors will explain. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's being called a breakthrough in human anatomy. New research from the University of Limerick in Ireland has found a brand new organ inside the human body. It's called the mesentery, and researchers say it's a small fold that holds the stomach, small intestine, pancreas, and other organs to the back wall of the abdomen. While researchers have finally found it after all this time, its function is still poorly understood. They hope studying it can lead to better treatment for abdominal diseases. Canada tops the New York Times list of places to travel to in 2017. Besides our wide open spaces and growing cosmopolitan areas, the author made note of Canada's 150th birthday, which will be marked by many special events and free admission to our national parks. A practical part of the rationale? The weak Canadian dollar will give American travelers a better bang for their buck. He's the first person in cycling history to ride more than 22 kilometers an hour at the age of 105. Frenchman Robert Marchand said he was pleased with his effort at the velodrome west of Paris, but said he didn't see the sign telling him he had only 10 minutes left and would have gone quicker if he had. Marchand started riding a bike at the age of 14, but didn't start cycling seriously until he was 67 years old. The 105-plus age category was created just for him, and he says he is now waiting for a rival. She made headlines around the world in the 1980s and 90s as the leader of Rhythm Nation, but this week, at age 50, Janet Jackson became a mother for the first time. Jackson made headlines in 2016 after she announced that she and her husband, Wissam Almana, were expecting their first child in early 2017. Earlier this week, Jackson's publicist announced the birth of Asa Almana and said Janet had a stress-free, healthy delivery and is resting comfortably. 
William Christopher, who played Father Francis Mulcahy on the hit television series MASH, has died. His character was a gentle Catholic priest who loved boxing in the chaotic surroundings of a U.S. Army medical unit near the front lines of the Korean War. After the show ended, Christopher appeared on stage at Mississauga's Stage West Dinner Theater. His son, John Christopher, says William was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer over a year ago and died this week at his home in Pasadena, California. He was 84. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Eating right and getting healthier are top New Year's resolutions for most of us, and a groundbreaking science writer has a new prescription. Never mind worrying about fats, red meat, or salt, says Gary Taubes. He believes sugar is the root of all dietary evil and the main culprit behind the obesity and diabetes epidemics. I talked with him about his new book, The Case Against Sugar. We have these epidemics of obesity and diabetes worldwide. So whenever populations start eating Western diets and living Western lifestyles, they begin to eventually manifest these explosive increases in obesity and diabetes. And it doesn't matter what the baseline population is. So they could be an agrarian population in Southeast Asia or a Inuit population living on you know, uh, uh, caribou and seal meat. Eventually, they move on to a Western diet. They get obese and diabetes. And I'm asking this question, what's the cause? And I'm proposing that sugar should certainly be the prime suspect. We've, over the last few years, seen a lot of evidence against sugar and uh, how the sugar lobby sort of, uh, you know, was able to guard against action taken against sugar. Yeah, clearly the sugar industry played a very active role in trying to assure that there was no consensus, that there was something unique about sugar and the calories from sugar that caused chronic disease. But the conventional thinking 50 years ago as today is that, so we've got diabetes, which we assume is caused by obesity. And then we assume that obesity is caused by eating too much or exercising too little. And so it's a calorie issue or an energy balance issue. And so you take in more energy than you consume. And by that thinking, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. It doesn't matter where, what food you're eating. It's not what you eat. It's how much you eat that matters. And Beginning in the 1960s, when we started targeting dietary fat as the cause of heart disease, and I think we did this in, we were wrong about that, um, the focus on fat and the nutrition cardiology communities, was the focus was clearly on dietary fat. So what the sugar industry did is basically fund researchers to say, look, it's fat, not sugar. And the researchers believed it to be fat, not sugar. And then they would also fund people to remind the world that the nutrition community thinks a calorie is a calorie. So it doesn't matter where your excess calories come from. I'm trying to get us away from that thinking. What made you believe that sugar itself is toxic? The greatest change in modern diets in the past 200 years has been sugar consumption, massive increases in sugar consumption in association with these massive and unprecedented increases in obesity and diabetes. And when you actually look at the mechanisms involved, 
the biological mechanisms, sugar is always at the scene of the crime. But are you basically saying, when you say it's not fat, that if somebody consumed a lot of fat or a lot of red meat or the other things that most people target as causes of diabetes and obesity and all of that, that they wouldn't get sick? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So are you saying that salt doesn't cause any of these things in excess of sodium? The evidence has always been poor. In clinical trials, you can demonstrate that fairly significant reductions in salt consumption of the kind that's virtually impossible to pull off in modern Western societies have exceedingly modest effects on blood pressure, certainly not enough to assume that this is the cause of hypertension. People will want a prescription. The uh, epilogue of your book is how little sugar is still too much. So how do you answer that question? Well, clearly it's different for everyone um, in terms of how much they can tolerate. So I would argue, you know, if for those who are predisposed to put on fat, um, obese or already obese or diabetic, that there is no such thing as sugar in moderation. I mean, we would never tell... Smokers. We don't talk about smoking in moderation. We don't tell alcoholics they should drink alcohol in moderation. Moderation means you, this is as much as you can consume and be relatively lean and healthy. And you don't really know how healthy you are. That's without a lot of blood tests, um, repeated tests to find out even if you're healthy today, whether it's not going to be worse three months from now because of the sugar. So do you and advocate it, cutting it out entirely? I think a viable approach for everyone is to try and cut it out entirely, yeah. But I'll bet you that for a large proportion of the public, if they could go without it for long enough, they would find that they're perfectly happy and a lot healthier. And so I advocate at least experimenting with some significant, you know, getting off sugar, going at least a month without sugar to see how you feel, and ideally longer. Okay. On that note, we'll wrap things up. Gary Taubes, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. That was the author of The Case Against Sugar, Gary Taubes. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When we return, how your address can affect your risk of dementia. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Where you live can increase your risk of dementia. That's the findings of a study done by researchers from Public Health Ontario and the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences that was published in the prestigious medical journal The Lancet. They found that the closer you live to traffic, the higher your risk of developing dementia. One of the study lead authors, Ray Copes, joins me now. First of all, can you just uh, summarize what you found about the increased risk for people who live close to main roads? Okay, so our study looked at uh, several million Ontario residents and we categorized them by their uh, residential proximity to major traffic arteries. We then followed them forward and looked at their risk of developing uh, three neurological conditions. So those were Parkinson's, multiple cirrhosis, and dementia. We found no link between how close people live to major traffic 
and MS and uh, Parkinson's. However, for dementia, we did find an association, and it was an association that got stronger the closer one lived to major traffic. And so what were the risk factors that you found, or the, uh, the risk amounts? Okay, so the risk, if you live within uh, 50 meters uh, of uh, a major uh, traffic artery, uh, the increase in risk was uh, 7% above baseline. So when you move further away, 50 to 100 meters away from the major roadway, the risk was uh, 4% elevation from 100 meters to 200 meters, a 2% increase, and beyond 200 meters, risk was back down the baseline. I just want to clarify what that means. Does that mean if your risk is 20%, that 20% increased by 7% or does that mean that 7% of cases were caused by this? No, it would mean your risk increases by 2, 4, or 7% from a, a baseline risk that everyone in the population would have. And for a condition as common as dementia, if you look at the prevalence in um, the age group that uh, runs from uh, 65 to 74, you know, background rates of, of dementia are already between 2 and 3%. And when you go a decade higher, uh, over 10%. So we're looking at risks above and, and, and beyond the baseline. For the group that lives closest to um, major roadways within um, 50 uh, meters, the proportion of um, dementias that might be attributable to traffic-related pollution would be, I think, on the order of 10 or 11%. So we did that calculation as well. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, certainly, I think it argues uh, that it's a uh, a potentially significant public health burden that may be associated with this risk factor. And uh, did you only measure pollution? What about something like noise? Well, unfortunately, we didn't actually measure pollution. Our exposure measure was how close you lived to traffic. So we can't tease apart uh, potential effects from things like noise, which also gets uh, higher as you move closer to major traffic arteries, uh, versus some of the air pollutants that also increase as you get closer. So our measure of risk was simply where you live. And uh, we did not uh, have a measure of noise uh, or uh, air pollution that we could do a comparison and try and tease apart which one it is or isn't. This would be worrying, especially when you consider that a lot of older people, say, move to condos. A lot of condos are on major streets, major roads. Uh, I've seen lots of long-term care homes on major streets. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think the effect, should there be um, you know, some sort of a causal relationship here, would likely involve long-term exposure to uh, air pollution, so I think, or, or traffic-related pollution, I should say. Uh, and I don't think it's something that's likely to occur in a, in a very short space of time. So, you know, I don't think the results of our study would justify someone moving simply because of our study, but I think the overall uh, medical literature on the effects of living close to major traffic arteries is one factor people might wish to consider when uh, selecting their place of residence. Okay, Dr. Ray Copes, thanks so much. You're quite welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Ray Copes, Chief of Environmental and Occupational Health at Public Health Ontario. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When we return, we'll celebrate what would have been the King's 82nd birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Bob Comsick. We begin in New York with a cure for the post-holiday blues, a new production of Finian's Rainbow. It's off-Broadway at the Irish Repertory Theatre through January 29th. In England, work by some of the great masters, including Michelangelo and Rembrandt, being exhibited free of charge at the University of Hull. It's a show that spans more than 500 years from the British Museum's collection. Meanwhile, in London's Covent Garden, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan has been receiving rave reviews. It runs until February the 18th at the Donmar Warehouse. And the L.A. County Natural History Museum hopes to dazzle you with diamonds, rare brilliance, which brings together rare colored gems never before seen in the U.S., such as the Juliet Pink Diamond, an extremely rare 30-carat pink diamond, and the Argyle Violet Diamond, the world's rarest fancy deep grayish, bluish violet gem from Australia. I'm Bob Comsick with the International Arts Datebook. This weekend, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, would have celebrated his 82nd birthday. For over three decades, he was a major presence in rock, pop, blues, and gospel music. As one of the biggest cultural icons of the 20th century, his legacy and music continue to live on long past his early death in 1977. Elvis's birthday is still an annual celebration at his famous home, Graceland. Every year, fans flock to the estate to take part in festivities that include sing-alongs, memorabilia auctions, Elvis trivia, and, of course, birthday cake. Right now, we'll celebrate Elvis's birthday with one of his many number one hits. Here is It's Now or Never. That was Elvis Presley singing It's Now or Never. This weekend would have been the 82nd birthday of the king of rock and roll. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.